The most important thing I learned in my life is that there is a rhythm to creativity and productivity, that it takes about five years to learn how to do something, and then another five years to develop that and do it as well as you can. And then you have another five years of continuing to do that at what, you know, what I have hoped would be a reasonably high level. But then you reach a point of diminishing returns. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Program Life Podcast, where we want our listeners, guests, and myself to learn something new. Every two weeks, I bring in a world-class expert on a topic related to productivity or mental health. And our guest on this episode today is Edward Tenner. Edward is an independent writer, speaker, and editor who analyzes the cultural aspects of technological change. He's the author of Our Own Devices and Why Things Bite Back. In this episode, we discuss about his latest book, The Efficiency Paradox, What Big Data Can't Do. So real quick, if you want my key takeaways on this episode and the show notes, just head over to programlife.info and you can also sign up for my exclusive email list. You can also follow me on Instagram, yogeshprabhu2, that is Y-O-G-E-S-H-P-R-A-B-H-U-2, and Twitter, at yogeshprabhu03. That's enough plug-in for me, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. All right, so um, welcome to the show, Edward, and I would like to first thank you for taking your time and um, having a chat with me today, and I've really been looking forward to this conversation today, so I'm glad that we're finally able to connect and make this happen. Well, thank you very much. I've been looking forward to it, too. Yeah, so um, can you give us a more of a brief summary of how you got to where you are now and like a little background of what led you to studying efficiency and writing a book like it? Well, it, it's something that has actually happened over over 50 years, but I can I can I can summarize it in a number of acts. In the first act, uh, I was a uh, an aspiring historian of 19th century Germany. Uh won various fellowships, took a uh, PhD in the subject, and then entered the job market and learned that there was much less demand for historians of 19th century Germany than I had uh, originally thought. Uh, This led me to a number of other teaching assignments and projects, among them helping my former teacher, William McNeil. And that, I think, was one of the things that helped me get a job as science editor at Princeton University Press, uh, which I had for uh, about 15 or 16 years. And in that time, I was actually being paid to learn about science and technology, but also I had uh, direct experience with using information technology. For example, I was on the internet in uh, uh, in, or, uh, in or before 1988. So mm-hmm. I was corresponding with scientists all over the world and they were already on something like the internet. It was not necessarily called the internet then, but it was very similar. I was using email. And then in 1991, I got lucky. I won a Guggenheim, and I was able to take some of the questions that I had while working as a science editor and to develop them in a book. And when I was a science editor, I noticed a lot of paradoxes of technology. For example, 
people were talking about the paperless office, and yet our recycling bins were filling faster and faster. So I wrote a piece called The Paradoxical Proliferation of Paper, and I showed how the adoption of networks in the office coupled with the rise of inexpensive laser printing actually was leading people to use more rather than less paper. And this became a kind of paradigm for looking at all kinds of uh, unexpected and paradoxical effects of technology, some of which are positive. So I've never been one of the uh, the, the, the naysayers and doomsayers of technology. Uh, quite the contrary, if anything, I'm, I'm, I'm really on the optimistic side. But I also see that, that reality is so much more complicated than, uh, than people say. And what I learned to do in publishing was really to, to read the literature of the scientific and technical professionals. I couldn't read the most technical articles, but there were a lot of review articles that gave me an overview of the subject. And I needed to do that in order to know which scientists to approach for books. But that method also was very, very useful to me as a writer, because I saw that there were uh, many people in computer science, engineering, other scientific and technical fields who are writing about these same problems. And I'm popular among those people because I'm able to put together ideas uh, taken from uh, a wide variety of sources and to find uh, common themes in them. And the most recent book, The Efficiency Paradox, is uh, a, a new kind of critique of Silicon Valley. I say it's a new kind of critique because people have made all kinds of, uh, uh, of accusations uh, that Silicon Valley has increased inequality, that it has promoted discrimination, that it has invaded privacy, that it has uh, tampered with the political process. And there's a lot of truth in these. But what people in Silicon Valley really care most about isn't any of those things, but it's really efficiency. It's really how how programs are able to, to get more done with less effort. And what I tried to show in the book uh, my elevator talk, if, if, we, if people were still riding in elevators, this would be called an elevator talk. But my elevator talk was too much efficiency in the short run can make us less efficient in the long run. In other words, we, we need a certain amount of inefficiency and error and randomness and serendipity in order to become more efficient. And that is the efficiency paradox. Yeah, that's a great summary. And I think one of the most interesting things about um, the book is that you are a historian and the book really does look back and reflect on certain events. And it really is interesting in terms of understanding where we are right now by looking back. And it also sort of helps us look forward in a way. And this to me is really interesting, uh, is a really interesting take in that perspective. And at the start of the book, you start off with almost like a, a conclusion. And it says, my conclusion is that we don't have to choose between big data algorithms and efficiency on one side and um, intuition, skill and experience on the other. We just need the right blend. And so I just want to delve into the last chapter a bit where you mentioned strategies on how to exactly do that. And 
you, uh, I want to talk about a couple of those or, um, if you don't mind. And so you mentioned six strategies and I want mm-hmm. to delve into the first one. Um, if you don't mind explaining, which is the idea of the perfect five. Yeah, the perfect five is actually a uh, introduced not by me, but by a uh, by an artificial intelligence researcher, and, and really means that there is a there is a there is a balance between uh, complete reliance on intuition and delegating everything to uh, to artificial intelligence. And his argument, and, and again, he is a professional in the field. His argument is that that uh, we should really use each each uh, each approach for what it's good for. So uh, the the insight that people have really can't be uh, duplicated by AI. For example, artificial intelligence and machine learning can tell you what has really been successful and it can guide you in new variations of what's already been successful but it's not very good at making a creative leap at finding something that is that is different and will will really uh, transform a landscape or an industry one example i like to use is the eiffel tower when the eiffel tower was completed uh, all the leading people in in Paris literary and artistic life thought it was the ugliest thing they'd ever seen. This this big big metal thing in in the midst of a beautiful city. It was it was really an eyesore. But over time, people started to look at it in a different way, and they they saw how graceful it really was, and they saw it as a long-term embellishment for the city and now it's the, it's the symbol of the city so if the artificial intelligence had existed then uh it, it certainly would never have recommended anything like the eiffel tower mm-hmm. yeah that's it's really interesting because um i also wanted to know how your opinion on how um the idea of efficiency can actually also boost creativity in a way and new in- uh, and new inventions and breakthroughs because in my opinion we are now living in this age where technology is advanced and is growing at a blinding rate. And um, nowadays we can find a solution to a problem for human needs more easily. Like we can just search up quick, quickly on Google and we can conveniently figure out um, even if we don't have to. And as technology and innovation gets better, the more things that are going to be done for us. Therefore, we don't have to think much as before and we will be thinking bigger and greater ideas, therefore accelerating our growth. And we can kind of, what I think of it as is simply as before when we were cavemen, we only used to think about survival and food and shelter. Um, but now um, most most of that isn't a problem. And there, therefore, we just, we don't solely focus on those anymore. And we just rather focus on learning and coming up with better ideas. So what is your thought on this analogy? Well, I, I should say that the that that some of the world's greatest art has been found in caves. So uh, th- there there is a uh, there is a paradox there that that the invention of agriculture was actually connected with less leisure and uh, and and a harder way of life, uh, and the. Uh, 
the hunters and gatherers were, were in a lot of ways the original leisure society and and they created some some notable works of art but i don't propose to to return to that or, or think of that as as a as a as a uh, as a goal for uh, for for us now uh but i certainly agree with you that uh that that automation and, and artificial intelligence can augment creativity, and, and it can in the following sense: that it used to be, if you had an idea, um, it could take you a long time to test it. You might have to build a physical model. You, you, there'd be there'd be many things that that you you really you really needed to do. And one of the great things about information technology is that it lets us simulate a lot of things. We're, we're able to identify uh, the the valid and useful designs more quickly, uh, and it isn't necessarily immediately going to give us the best form. So there there is definitely a role for the creative, intuitive person. And intuitive just means that that you have a kind of hidden machinery that's based on your experience and your knowledge. And you can't necessarily explain how you arrived at a, at, at a way of doing something, which is wh whether it's painting or, or designing a new building, but it's, it's based on just a lot of what you've learned and can't necessarily uh, describe. And what the, what the simulation can do is to say, well, uh, look, we, we can we can build this as a model. We can we can stress test it. I mean, think of of what all the possibilities, for example, in in aeronautical engineering in, in shipbuilding. It used to be that you, you really had to spend years and years testing things, and now uh, you can really identify which ideas are are the most promising, and then use the technology to refine them. And this comes back to the idea of the perfect five. So you don't have necessarily, you don't have a return to the the old way of doing things with, with pencil and ink and paper completely. Uh, but what you can do is you can make your sketches with, uh, with pencil or, or, or ink, and then you can turn them over to a uh, to a simulation program uh, like a simulated wind tunnel or or the simulated uh, si simulated uh, uh, navigation ship navigation and to say well if you have if you have a wind of this strength then that will that will put stresses here and the design that you gave has has the following has the following risks so you you'd better tweak it and that's certainly better than than building things and and watching them watching them fail and when you look at the history of technology there have been so many spectacular failures for example the medieval cathedrals were were some of the greatest works of engineering ever before the development of an engineering curriculum but one side of that was that the the builders of the cathedrals had no way of knowing at what point something was was too tall at what point a bold design was just going to collapse so i spoke at a conference in the german city of ulm is in in south germany and that cathedral i think had collapsed 
at least once uh, because the the architects didn't really realize how fragile the design was. There's another uh, famous cathedral, Beauvais, that 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 also collapsed. Uh, so these things these things happened in the Middle Ages, and to some extent they have happened in 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 uh, shipbuilding design. There, there have been there have been all kinds of of designs. For example, the uh, I've I've lectured on on Titanic and uh, Titanic had some supposedly had uh, had all of the latest uh, the, the latest features, but the the way the bulkheads were constructed, if you if you had had better modeling, I suspect that it could have revealed problems before the Titanic was launched and led to modifications that would have. Uh, not necessarily prevented the ship from sinking, but that would have delayed the sinking long enough so that everybody could have been saved. Yeah, and I think um, th- one of my curious questions for you is also that uh, some people think that the future for us is going to be really good or like great, and or it could also be our down- downfall. And some also think that technology is the future and is the way to go as such people like um, Elon Musk are trying to push things to the next level. Mm. And some other people do think that technology is a bit worrisome in the future and a bit scary. So where do you fall into the, into, in this spectrum? I'm a, I'm a pragmatist in the sense that um, I'd say I, I describe myself as a pragmatic skeptic. So I think that, you know, entrepreneurs uh, and Musk is maybe the outstanding one at the moment, but entrepreneurs have to have to believe in a certain kind of hype. They, they really need to, to, uh, as they say in Silicon Valley, eat their own dog food. So that means that they're going to be making all kinds of statements that, that, may not really stand up to critical scrutiny, but are needed to keep up the morale of their employees and, and shareholders and hold things together uh, through, uh, through all kinds of difficulties and, and failure. And so somebody in that position uh, can't afford to take the kind of ambiguous stance that, 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 that I take, uh, which is that some things are really great and, and others are, others are, are, are terrible. And my, my idea is that you really, the, the point in, in adopting new technologies is not really to be afraid of them, but to adopt them slowly and very watchfully and to, uh, to be prepared to stop those that are that that turn out to be dangerous, but then being able, then you're able to identify those that have have long term long term promise. And I, I think that many of the problems that we've had with technology uh, ha, have been not so much due to the technology, but due to the fact that that we rush to adopt things and we don't really give things the kind of trial that they that they need and my position then is is that it it's really it's really like a a series of steps uh that you monitor carefully and 
and if if all goes uh, right, then then you uh, you might have delayed the payoff, but you've also prevented a, a disaster of of going headlong into something that that turns out to have hidden problems. Mm-hmm. That's that's really interesting. And just linking back to when you said um, adopting to technology. Um, what is your opinion on working remotely? Because in in the last chapter, you also talk about in one of your strategies, which is that you need to get uh, together more and more face-to-face and mm-hmm. that digital communication doesn't really solve everything. Mm-hmm. And in this era of the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of people have been working remotely. Mm-hmm. And I want to hear your opinions and advice for the people working remotely right now and how to possibly overcome certain issues with it. Well, I've always, as an as an author, I have worked ninety five percent, maybe ninety eight percent of the time remotely. That is, I have contributed to publications and have never met the editor. Although there are other editors that that have been good friends and whom I've seen regularly, and I'm not really sure that for me as a writer, it is so important to see my my editor regularly in fact there could be advantages in 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 not seeing editors but that's because of my role as a as an independent writer uh it's it's a different story for somebody who is let's say a staff writer and there too i think it depends on the nature of the publication uh in the case of the new yorker for example I think people were always in their little offices in the in the New Yorker uh, in New Yorker uh, headquarters in in Manhattan, and so maybe they would go out for lunch or drinks or something, and it was certainly useful for them to be in Manhattan and to be able to meet conveniently with with their sources of information and and you know, others that they that they needed to to uh, to work with. On the other hand, I think it's Kind of some, it's different. Let's say if you're putting out a newspaper, and uh, and sometimes if you have a meeting, there is something that's lost when when you're you're not seated around a conference table when you don't get to see the same kind of nuances in in people's expression. And also, my experience in in Zoom meetings is that. A Zoom meeting may have all of the presentations that occur in a conventional meeting, but a Zoom meeting lacks something. What a Zoom meeting lacks is the kind of side conversations that you have with your peers during breaks. And sometimes, again, from my experience, those are as important as anything you hear in the meeting. And there is proof of that. I've spoken twice at TED. And the people who come to TED pay today $10,000 to see presentations that a year from now they're going to be able to watch free on, on, uh, on the web. Uh, why do they do that? Well, they, they do that not that it's it's so thrilling to sit in the auditorium and see people speak for 15 minutes or so uh although many of them are are really very uh uh they're they're wonderful talks but but it's not that 
they're necessarily worth flying all the way to Vancouver and uh, and and sitting in the auditorium. In fact, one of the things I noted at TED was how many people preferred to watch the talks on large screen televisions in the many the many lounges around there. However, the the real payoff of TED came during all of the breaks, the, the lunch breaks, the, the, the dinner events where, where people mm-hmm. uh, mixed and talked about what they'd, uh, what they'd heard. They you know, expressed their opinions. They sometimes would, would approach me as a speaker in a way that they couldn't. So what they were really paying for was the, the, the serendipitous side of the event. They were not really paying to, to so much to see us speak or to see us speak earlier. Yeah. And, um, since I, I see you as more of a, um, a very wise historian and I would like to know on what's the most, just give us like a short, um, advice on what's the most important thing that you have learned in your life and what was it like before learning it and after learning it? Oh, that's, that's quite a question. I'd say, I'd say this, the most important thing I learned in my life is that there is a rhythm to creativity and productivity, that it takes about five years to learn how to do something. And then another five years to develop that and do it as well as you can. And then you have another five years of continuing to do that at what you know what i have hoped would be a reasonably high level but then you reach a point of diminishing returns and so looking back on what i've been doing i have followed a series of these 15 year runs i have and and i think that i have you know i'm 76 now but i i i i don't feel you know i i i don't feel very different from the way i felt 50 years ago, because I'm always moving on to the next phase of what I'm doing. But when I'm moving on, it's not that I've abandoned what I've done. It's not that I've abandoned what I learned getting a PhD in in 19th century German history. Quite the contrary. Uh, What I learned then, what I learned from helping William McNeil with, with Plagues and Peoples, uh, what I learned teaching in uh, in community colleges, what I learned as an acquisition editor, all of that is kind of cumulative. I'm able to use a lot of the insights that I got from that, but I wouldn't be able to do what I do if I if I had stayed in any one of those jobs. So maybe I'm I think I'm a little unusual in that that I've been I've been a nomad. I've been I've really gone from one career to another but but i see them not as a as a sharp break but as as taking what i learned in the last phase and bringing it forward into the next so if you're asking me to summarize what what i've learned i think it is it is to use an imagination to see what other uses you can make from what you've been doing instead of kind of projecting it uh, endlessly into the future, you can say, well, what I've, what I've done so far could give me a really good, could help me make a, a, a more important contribution in another area than I would be able to make if I stayed just doing, doing what I'm doing. Mm, yeah. And I liked how you mentioned where you said that it's almost like 
you're living in the moment because you don't feel you're any different um, from 50 years ago. And to just quickly wrap this episode up, I would just like you to answer one last question, which I always do at the end of each episode, which is where I relate um, the topic that we're talking about to Stoicism. And Stoicism is one of my favorite philosophies of life. And um, I want to know your opinion on this quote, which links uh, back to living in the present. And you also mentioned that in your TED talk, where you also started off with, you know, um, trying to, that you're trying to talk about being in the present. And so um, here's the quote, never let the future disturb you. You will meet it if you have to with the same weapons of reasons, which today arm you against the present. Uh, quoted by Marcus Aurelius. So I would like to know what your opinion is on this quote and how does it apply to your life and the work that you do? Well, that is a, that is a, that is a great quote. And I, I think that uh, it, it really expresses, uh, it, it expresses a lot of things that I have, I have learned how to do. I should say that I, I wasn't always in uh, I, I wasn't always really as as prepared for the present, let alone the future. When in the in the 70s, I had gone through a whole series of of uh, uh, awards and fellowships and and stuff like that, and and so I I thought of this career in which I would just be continuing to to do what I did and and become a you know a, a hotshot professor and 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 all of that. And the, uh, the the not having the kind of dissertation that would get me a job in that market, not having not having a second chance, uh, I did not really have that philosophy at the time. It was really something that I had to learn for myself through uh, through experience and and through through a lot of dif- difficulties and 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 disappointments uh but i think that the net result i i i absolutely agree with the sentiment of of uh of of looking to the future uh with that sort of confidence because once i saw that i could rebuild my identity in this case as as an editor rather than as a uh, Rather than as as a specialist historian, I I saw that the this this disaster had really been good for me. I was always a generalist. I became a specialist because that was going to be my ticket to academia. But that was a very bad reason because the people who are really good specialists love that kind of specialist mm-hmm. work, and and I didn't. It was it was a kind of means to an end for me. And once I saw that. I saw that I would need to have positions in which uh, my my own psychology, my my own tendency to be to generalize and to look for look for uh, odd things and paradoxes would be rewarded instead of having to kind of fit that into an academic framework that that I really wasn't wasn't suited for. So I, I think that one of, one of the, the applications that I would have for that idea is to, is to see setbacks as a, 
as as potentially a, a message, uh, not that what you've been doing has been wasted, but that you might have more might have more productive ways to use your experience, ways that you you haven't imagined yet. And once you once you've been able to do that, once you've seen that, then it becomes easier. So now, I if if you you've heard this word doom scrolling, so you can see all kinds of these terrible scenarios, but. Having having lived through a lot of these problems, I have, I I I don't have the same kind of anxiety that that I once did because maybe wrongly, but but still uh, convincingly to me, you know, I, I've developed a sense that that I'm able I'm able to deal with these changes, and and I think that that quotation. Uh, summarizes what is what has become a very important part of my experience mm-hmm. yeah again um edward thank you so much for coming on to the show and thanks for so much for your time well thank you very much i, I really uh, enjoyed exploring these ideas with you and i hope that uh, your your listeners will uh, find something of value there yeah definitely thank you so much again thanks again thank you